Hi there, I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. We're real-life best friends, but we met playing fake-life best friends, Turk and JD, on the sitcom Scrubs. 20 years later, we've decided to re-watch the series one episode at a time and put our memories into a podcast you can listen to at home. We're going to get all our special guest friends like Sarah Chalk, John C. McGinley, Neil Flynn, Judy Reyes. Show creator Bill Lawrence, editors, writers, and even prop masters will tell us about what inspired the series and how we became a family. You can listen to the podcast Fake Doctors, Real Friends with Zach and Donald on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. How are you doing today? I'm Ray Harkins, the host of 100 Words or Less, the podcast, this thing that you have downloaded and you are putting in your ear holes. I appreciate you doing that because I've been noticing the past couple episodes, they've been getting a, you know, a little more traction, a little more downloads, and that means you are spreading the word or whatever it is that you do, but I really, really appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to make this intro tight. My son is sitting on my lap and <laughs> he's always excited to re- record these intros and hang out with me, but uh, I'm going to make this tight. Because we have a double-headed episode today. One, the bulk of the uh, episode is with my friend George Pettit, the vocalist from Alexis on Fire. One of my good friends, and uh, I just I adore him as a human, and I wanted to have him on for quite some time. Because I've almost collected every single member of Alexis on Fire, where I think we're at three now. And I just need to get Steel, the bassist, and Ratbeard, the drummer. And then I've got the whole band, but... So George is just a incredibly kind human. I've spent many, many hours with him on the road and playing shows with him. And I actually sang for Alexis on Fire for like, uh, I don't know, about a week or so because uh, he he lost his voice, which is, I think, the only time he's ever had that happen to him. But uh, I got to sing two sets when Taken was on tour with Alexis on Fire, and it was uh, quite, quite an experience. But anyways, uh, that was George, or that is George, and you'll be hearing that. But you'll be hearing a conversation that I had with Dan Thompson. The uh, He's from the band Sparrows. They are a very good band and they released a record uh, earlier August, August 9th, if I'm not mistaken, called Failed Gods. It's a really good record. I wanted to have him on here because, uh, yeah, I just think you need to check out the record. They are a really, really good band. And uh, yeah, they're from the Toronto area. And I figured, why not? Let's include both of them in this cool chat. So had a quick, you know, 15 minute chat with him up at the very top of this episode. And then you will hear a little break in the music and then uh, George will come in. So that's what we got for today. So please spread the word, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast, and ultimately tell a friend, because that's the best way that you can spread the word of this thing. So that's what we got. Two interviews for the price of one, even though you're not paying any money for this. But anyways, you get the point. Here is Dan and then George. You got, I mean, you all essentially live in Toronto, yeah, in the surrounding areas, or where are you like kind of based out of? Yeah, it's kind of all GTA. We actually, we originally started in Ottawa, which is about five ish hours northeast of here, four and a half maybe, depending on how quickly you drive. Uh, but our guitar player, Justin, actually lives in London, which is about two hours southwest. Yep. Uh, and he drives up a couple of times a week for us to be able to rehearse, but everybody else is in the Toronto to GTA area. Yeah, I love uh, G- GTA, uh, Southern Ontario. I mean, uh, you know, I don't need to tell you how much I love that place because obviously you've you've heard me talk about it many times. But um, 
I just love the, the thing that's always impressed me about that area in particular is that it's always been able to harbor such a, um, you know, permissive environment, especially from an all ages perspective. And so many, so many random bands as far as styles and like, I don't know. It's just, I'm sure you've noticed it over time where it's just like, it seems like there's always something cool that is happening in the area. Um, from so many different styles of music. And, you know, I, I really can't attribute it beyond the fact that there's just a million suburbs around Toronto and there's so many different things going on. But, uh, I don't know what have, I presume you've noticed it. Honestly, it's such a funny thing too, because I actually grew up on like the East side of the suburbs. Like I, I lived in Belleville, which is about an hour 45 ish away from Toronto. So like we used to go into Toronto for shows, but we were far enough away that, Sometimes I would like, like we're not going to drive to Oakville to say, go see boys night out because it's just a little bit too far. Uh, but at the same time, like we lived 40 minutes from Kingston where for some reason, darkest hour used to play there all the time. So we used to bomb up to there to see darkest hour, all of these other things. So like Southern Ontario scene, like all, you know, like I got to see boys night out and I got to see Alexa on fire and all of these bands as they started out which was just a crazy thing at the time because I don't think I appreciated how rare and how crazy a time that was. But at the same time, we also lived in this weird spot where like we had our kind of own existence going on with a bunch of different random stuff. And we would get to see these then Southern Ontario bands outside of their, like the cultured area where they came from, which was almost more interesting in a roundabout way. Um, but like, that's not to say that I didn't go to see like Silverstein at the YMCA in Oakville or Burlington or something. Cause those were crazy shows too, but it's, I kind of got the best of both worlds of like being able to be out of it and watch it from the outside, but also not being far enough away that we couldn't indulge and kind of get, be a part of that when we wanted to be. Um, but it, the thing I kind of attribute it to it is I feel like it's kind of the same as a lot of other like scenes, quote unquote, in, in the States as well is that you had an environment of a bunch of people that had very different musical interests and backgrounds that because there wasn't a whole lot of other things to do, they were just forced to play in bands together. And then this like mixture of weird, um, you know, it's different styles of music would come in together and create all these crazy different bands that then would go and play shows together. And then you would get all that different mixture of that and it would create other bands. And it's just, to me is a very cool thing but everything's so close together that even if you were three hours away, you could do an entire weekend of shows and never really have to worry about it. <laughs> no, totally. And I, I do think that, yeah, it, yeah I, I do think that you, you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head where you have the permutations of all of these people seeing, you know, playing, like you said, kind of forced to play in bands together. Cause you're just like, well, this guy plays guitar and he, you know, kind of likes some misfits. So I guess we'll, <laughs> I guess we'll play together. And then, but then how that fractures off where it's like your influences have then influenced that person that, you know, kind of like the misfits. And then all of a sudden you appreciate the misfits more and like, just how you start to build off that and then how it fractures off the people in the audience. Like you just don't ever know how those things are, are going to, you know, bounce around and, and permeate to where it's like all of a sudden like, Oh wow, this, this dude that I played in a band with is now like in a really, you know, good band and, you know, successful or whatever, but just like, Oh, I never would have thought that they would have followed that path, but it's great. Oh, absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's a really interesting thing too, because of how, small i'll say like the canadian music is is that you kind of get to see these people do it a little more directly you know like some people that are maybe in different spaces maybe that's aware to them but like i couldn't tell you the past that you know um 
I'm trying to even think of who who I like that's American, but then it's like I can tell you how um, you know these you know Silverstein became this band based on watching them grow directly. Right. So, so it's just kind of an interesting thing. It's like it's context or no, not context. That's not the word I want. But anyway, yeah, <laughs> no, I understand what you're saying, especially too where you are given the ability like yes of course you know we feel like shows in front of you know 100 to 200 people when you're 16 years old is obviously like you know the biggest thing you could possibly ever imagine but when you're talking about you know child actors or people who are thrust into the limelight in ways that you know most people aren't prepared to receive that sort of attention like we can have attention but not in the same way that you have those pressures. And like, you do have the ability to be like, Oh yeah, that was like my, you know, my chain wallet phase or whatever. Like you have the ability to do that and experiment <laughs> with it and not be like, you know, utterly embarrassed. I mean, yes, of course, certain things you can be like, Oh, I'd never do that again. But, um, you're given that, that freedom to do that and not live under this, you know, weird microscope, even though, you know, it, it still kind of exists, but not in the same level. Oh, absolutely. Uh, the the amount of bands that I was in before even doing anything real that are embarrassing, I don't want to admit to it. You know, I don't think anybody really wants to at the end of the day, but it's funny to think of, say, like, Left for Dead to Cursed to Burning Love to Sex and the fact that I can draw a line from that, but other people may not realize, you know, you know, Chris from Cursed, for example, like all of these different bands that have gone through there, they might just know Sex. And I think that that's kind of just an interesting thing about when you have bands that come out of any certain area that you're directly in involved in. Yeah. Um, and I, it's the same as all that. Like, I, again, like I'm sure there's bands that I used to like when I was younger that people are embarrassed of now that they're in something bigger. Uh, and it's, it's kind of funny, but it's also just kind of interesting to see that growth. Right, right. No, totally, totally. Um, and so, you know, as uh, as Sparrow's kind of started to, because y- you guys have been kicking around for what, like four or five years or a little bit longer? Oh, longer than that. Okay. I think it's nine years at this point. Okay, got but it. But it's got also it. kind of a weird thing because we started out that was kind of like a recording project. It was me and one other guy uh, that turned into a real band that turned into a real band with all new people other than me that took an entire year off at a certain point. So I kind of say that it's been like maybe five or six years of like serious push, but there's been, you know, other stuff going on. It's just kind of learning how to be a human being. It's kind of like learning how to be in a touring band and learning all of this different stuff. And it was just a process of like, it took a while to find people that wanted to tour. It took a while to, you know, find the style of music that we kind of fit into because we started off, being basically a small brown bike ripoff band and now we're where we are now which i think is significantly different but it just took a while to, to, to realize that that's where we were heading and that's what we were doing and i think part of that is just having the right people and especially growing up in or being abandoned ottawa at that time a ottawa is a pretty small city so it's tough to find people that are on the same page as you but also i think that at that point in time in that city's kind of musical history, I kind of slid in the middle of the age groups where it's like everybody that was older was either already in a band or had already decided to get out of the band. And everybody that was younger was just a little bit too young to be touring or doing things in like a more serious manner. So it just took a while to kind of figure that all out. Sure. Yeah. I I appreciate you laying it out like that. Cause I, I think that so many people, you know, like when you actually pay attention to the trajectory of most bands, like, you know, the first 
you know, two to arguably four years of a band's existence, especially when you started of a certain age, you know, if you're whatever, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old, um, you know, you are just figuring out what the heck it is that you're doing. Like, you know, it, it's a, it's amazing that you can even get a song together, let alone like to the shows. And so like, you, you just don't know what you're doing. Cause you're just like figuring it out on the fly. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. And so then when, you know, when you're like, Oh yeah, I guess we've been around for, you know, close to 10 years or whatever, but like, you know, I wouldn't count four of them towards it or whatever, just because, yeah, we are just figuring it out. Yeah. And it just makes me feel better too. Like I, I'm not like, Oh, it's been a decade. It's like, no, no, no. It's been like half a decade. I don't have to have all of that information be detrimental to my like mental health of being like, Oh my God, it's been a decade. You know, <laughs> right. like, what have I done? Right. What's, what's, am I, just, am I just sitting here like spinning my wheels? Like, what is this? What is this? <laughs> I should have stuffed that job out at Dairy Queen, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like the, uh, uh, Pat Oswald always used to make a joke where he was talking about, um, you know, many of his, uh, small town, uh, classmates would, uh, you know, their, their goal was to work at the local gas station to get free gas. And he was like, if that was your goal, like, dude, you got to have a little bit larger visions than that. And it's like, yeah. 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 So I'm glad you had larger visions than your local Dairy Queen. Not to say there's anything wrong with Dairy I, Queen employees, but you know. Oh, I just, I can't. Yeah, no, you're right. I'm going to let that one go at that point. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> and so you know, to the point, cause I mean, I, you know, you, you and I, well, I don't know if it's you, but I know that I've corresponded with uh, you guys, you know, pretty much the duration of the existence of the podcast. And, you know, so I paid attention to your trajectory as far as like, you know, you saying that you sounded like small brown bike, like that triggered a memory. I was like, that's right. Like I remember sonically that you guys were different than, you know, the most recent recording I had heard. Um, you know, I, and I, I'm going to guess that I uh, I attribute that to the fact that you guys, uh, not that your music taste evolved, because that happens with people as they get older, but then you just kind of got pulled into a, you know, more, I guess, heavier, screamier direction just because of your own personal preferences. And that was what was kind of coming out of the practice spaces. It's kind of weird because um, we I, I got thinking about this as we were starting to do the press for the new record here. And when we first started as a band, like I, I will openly admit Monina is my favorite band of all time. I, if I could literally copy every record they've done and put it out, I would sure I would make no money and there'd be a lot of copyright issues, but I would be happy. Um, and, but at the same time, I think we, when we started touring, especially a little more seriously and doing dates in the States and different things like that, we started to realize that what we were playing and the way we were playing things live was definitely heavier than how we would go in and record or however the songs were going. But I would also say that being involved in how the music business is, we also just kind of got angry and you know, it was never a, uh, like a, a mental decision to be like, we're going to be heavier band now. It just kind of started moving that way. And I would say, especially with the, the, the newest record and kind of the one before it, it was just straight what I would call like intense anger release where we'd start writing songs and like we'd get home from however many tours we had done that year. And it's like, okay, we're going to start working on a new record. And it was just getting out all of that kind of frustration. Whereas in the beginning of the, the band, as we talked about before, like we weren't touring a ton, we weren't doing that sort of stuff. So it was easier to kind of just buy into the influences that of whatever I was listening to or the bands that I was obsessed with at that point. Whereas now it's literally just like an emotional and physical reaction to the, the, what we have to deal with as a small independent touring band and what that kind of means. And because of that, it's just evolved into being heavier and heavier and heavier because 
you deal as, as you start to move along and maybe you grow a little bit and you do these things, you realize how much more all of this stuff is, uh, for lack of a better term, just fucking ridiculous, excuse my language. Um, and how all of this stuff relates to it. And like at the end of the day, like the record that we're putting out next week, it's, it's the heaviest thing we've ever done, but we just didn't go in deciding to be like, let's just be a riff machine. It was like, let's write these songs. And we were all just pissed. We were all just angry with how things have gone and our experiences within that. And I think that comes out because I think right now, if I was to write a record, it would be borderline ska. And it's just because, you know, life is pretty good right now. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, you know, the record's coming and every, all the, all the stress is coming to an end and it just gets to become part of the fun part. But you know, that's, you know, then we live through this for the next couple of years and we see what happens. So, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that, that portrayal. Cause I, I do think that it's something that I've always noticed and gravitated towards you guys as well is the fact that, uh, you know, aesthetically, like even though sonically the band has evolved over time, like aesthetically, you guys have always kind of operated in a certain, you know, wheelhouse. And, and I don't mean that like, you know, you're not creatively expanding yourself aesthetically, but like, you know, looking at the different, you know, art for the records and stuff like that, like there is a, you know, a thematic thing over time. And like, you know, when you're putting out singles and all the other stuff, like it's all kind of tied together, uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, and I think that that, you know, that, that sort of, you know, cohesiveness in some capacity, even though sonically you've changed that there's still that like level of like, well, you know, we're, we're not like trying to, you know, put new coats of paint on the band continually, like, you know, certain extent. Yes. But not to the point of where you're just like, you know, the next record, you're like, you're never going to guess what this is a bunch of, you know, pastels or whatever, or like, you know, neon and stuff, (laughs) you know? I I think that's kind of been on purpose if I'm uh, at that point in time, because again, especially for the last, six years it's been the same people in the band mostly uh and it's it also is my personality you know like i like old records you know my tastes in music are probably a a little bit older than what my age would dictate with that and so all of these records that i grew up listening to like i think of like nail yourself to the ground the small brown bike record i love that layout and we always joke about the fact that it looks like that because, you know, Photoshop wasn't really a thing then, you know, and all yeah. of these things are going on. But to me, that's also what appeals. And I see, you know, bands artwork nowadays and it's, it's cool. It's cool to see like die cut, uh, you know, vinyl casing and all of these different things. But at the same time, I would rather see that old style that like photograph based with a, with an, like a really well thought out font layout or whatever it is, because that's what I like. And, you know, the, the, um, the image for lack of a better term of the band has always been kind of based around the fact that we want that to be part of our presentation and it doesn't necessarily have to change based on how the music is. The theme of it will, or the look of it will, because even if you compare the last record uh, cover to this record cover, I think there's a stark difference and there's also a stark difference in the emotional uh, feel of the records. Uh, and I think that that's important, but at the end of the day, I can't imagine all of a sudden going to like, let's do a spray paint cover. Let's just write sparrows and spray paint. Like that would just be dumb. It would just wouldn't make sense, you know? Um, and I think that that's, I think part of the fun of being in a band is that you can kind of di- dictate whether you want to do a full wipe over or whether you want to just, you know, have your thing and, and buy into it and do it as, as best you can when it comes to that sort of thing. And that's just what I like, you know? And I, I, I love seeing what other people come up with. And I, I love that whole aspect of like how the artwork and how your merch and how everything mixes together. And it's just fun to see the different ways that people approach it. But at the end of the day, I, I'm literally just making myself go like, yes. And then hopefully everybody else digs it, you know? 
Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. I mean, ultimately, it's like you, you need to be able to look back on your, you know, body of artistic work and be proud of it. You know, <laughs> and if you're, if or you at decide, least like, learn from it, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. Proud. I mean, maybe is a is an overstatement, but like at least be able to right. understand that if you are sort of contextually embarrassed by the stuff that you've previously done, that you realize why it existed in that you know, time and space or whatever. It's like, yes, I played in this band at this particular time. And I, 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 you know, I would never listen to the record or recommend anybody else listen to the record, but I understand why I created it at that particular time. Absolutely. And it's just, a, it, for a lot of it, it's just like where your headspace is at, which I think is again, a kind of a fun thing. Cause you can look back at, you know, the embarrassing first record that you put out that at the time you thought was killer, but it, it's also just giving you a signal of like, Oh, I was 21. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's, I think that's as, as cool as it's the same as like people watching their, their other talents grow for like photography or any kind of art thing. It doesn't necessarily negate what it was that you did. You're just significantly better at it now, but it's still that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think that's cool. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, and so, you know, because you guys have done, you know, your, your fair share of, you know, obviously DIY touring around, you know, you guys haven't come out West to the states have you uh we have done pacific northwest we've basically we have a little semicircle that's cut from um california arizona new mexico and nevada that we have not hit got it okay everything else we've done other than maine because i I think four bands play in maine at any point in time which is beautiful (laughs) i've just never played a show there totally but i've we've played all the other states that are part of like our big north america thing i'd love to go to hawaii but no one's going to pay us to do that yeah um tough sell tough sell yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like I swear to God, like four people are going to show up. Let's do this. You yeah. know, like just not going to happen. <laughs> that was I. W- I was able to play two shows in Hawaii, but that was basically because we were going to Japan, and on the way back. We oh to, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, like that's what most bands do, and honestly, like the the show we were actually brought over there to play, like to Hawaii to play, wasn't very good. But then, like the that night, we got invited to play like an all ages show the next night, and that show was unbelievable. So I was like, dude, the guy that like paid for us to come over here is like you know great there's 40 people that showed up and it's like well biggest thing you should have done is not make it a 21 and over show like i don't know you're, you're kind of missing your audience there buddy but anyways I, <laughs> you're I, kind of skipping over here <laughs> yes I, I i digress but the um so the fact that you've collected all of these you know kind of touring experiences and stuff like that um and, and you know people always kind of make the you know make a, a very large difference between like playing shows in the states and playing shows in Canada and like you know why some bands you know I mean you know Alexis on Fire isn't as good of an example anymore because they are large here in the states but like you know at one point in time like they would play in front of 200 people here in California and they would play in front of you know 10,000 people in Canada or whatever um, what are some of the I guess differences that you see that exist being able to you know because you're experiencing it on you know the diy level over a larger period of time it's interesting because i i have like kind of conflicting ideas on this i think canadians are really um passionate about canadian music in a in certain instances if you're a canadian band in canada and you you catch someone on they seem to catch on to you and hold on to it which i think is super cool it's like a you know country pride sort of thing that doesn't mean like obviously every band catches on like that but alexa on fire being big in the states is never going to be alexa on fire being big in canada because it is such like a like a groundbreaking thing here uh but at the same time for a band our size 
it's actually easier to tour in the States and it's actually better for us than it is to tour in Canada because, you know, there's only so many shows that are going on. There's only so many times that you can play it. And a lot of those kind of smaller scenes that used to exist when I was say like 16, 17, that sort of, they don't really exist anymore. And I think that's part, partly uh, a demographic change of how people uh, consume music and consume media. But I also think too, that because of even just looking at the GTA, the transit options that are available, they don't necessarily need to have a show in Oakville because they can jump on the go train and be downtown in a half hour so they can go to the Toronto show. Um, and so when you have that opportunity to then go into the States where towns arguably are closer together, it's easier to have an opportunity to win people over because the market's a little different and people tend to show up to shows a little bit more. And I say that kind of reserved because I think everything's different uh, for every band, but at the end of the day, um, you know, for a smaller band, the U S market becomes more important because you know, like we can play in Toronto and that's great. And we can play in Montreal and that's great, but we can also play Boston and New York and we can play all of these other cities that are about the same size as maybe the three cities that we would play regularly in Canada without having to like do a long three week tour out to the other side. Um, and so that becomes the real appeal of being able to be more active in different markets than what is readily available to us. And then when those opportunities arise to play some of the smaller shows in like Brampton or Waterloo or, um, you know, London or places like that, because they're a little more rare, they become a little more special and you can kind of get uh, like a different vibe out of it. And I, I love them both for the fact that they're so different. But at the end of the day, like U.S. touring is significantly more valuable to us than Canadian touring is just because of what's available to you and the amount of different markets and the amount of different places you can play within the same time frame without having to like, like doing a 10 day Canadian tour that's Montreal and the rest is Ontario is just not feasible anymore. But when I started touring at 18, it was what you did. So, yeah, um, yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> I, I, no, it makes sense. Cause I, I do think that in, in a way that, uh, most bands from America, like, you know, there's no, you're only thinking obviously about, you know, your, whatever your city state. And then, you know, maybe if you get to the touring aspect, like then you start to think about the United States in general, but like uh, bands, especially from your area have this kind of, you know, real choice to make whether it's like all right do we focus on the states or do we kind of like focus around here and of course you know you can walk and chew gum at the same time and like you know play shows everywhere like you guys have done but yeah it does get to that point where you feel like you have to you know make a concerted effort in ways that you know like the only i mean the fact that taken did well up in in southern ontario was just a function of you know goodfellow records existing there if we did not work with a record label from southern ontario like i never would have thought about that area besides the fact that i was a fan of you know chokehold and great all those bands like but the, the fact that As you should be yeah. right exactly but the fact that like <laughs> you guys were able to you know kind of be like all right well you know after playing canada and playing the states like you know I, we we should you know focus more on maybe this and like you know a band like silverstein obviously did the same thing and you know arguably are you know larger here in the states than they are in canada and so it's just really interesting that bands of all different shapes and sizes have to kind of make that choice it's interesting absolutely in that way and i feel like different types of music kind of dictate that sort of thing too because like I'm sure you've heard of them. We have a band up here called the Tragically Hip that kind of ended uh, hilarious. Well, I don't mean to make this bad joke, but tragically. Um, 
but they were around forever. And I, I have American friends that know who they are, but they, they, they're not like it is up here where they're like basically gods of music, which is a great thing. But then you go into the States and people are like, Oh yeah, tragically, that's fine. Um, and I, that's in essence, what it comes down to is when you make that choice, it's like, yeah, of course you want to try and spread everything out. But if you're committing to Canada, you're really committing to Canada. And it is at the end of the day, a smaller, uh, pool to try and work from, you know, and for the type of music that we play and, you know, the types of shows that we play at the end of the day for us to be able to function the way that we want to, and hopefully be able to grow as a band, as cool as the Canadian market is, it's not worth the time that the American market is for us. And that's not to say we try and ignore it. It's just the priority lies somewhere else. And we just figured that out after a few years that we would have more luck going this way, you know? Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Um, and the last thing I wanted to, uh, you know, kind of pick your brain on with the fact that, um, you know, it, it seems like you and most of the guys in the band, you know, I- exist in the world where, you know, you clearly have, you know, jobs and obligations, like you're not making a living off of the band, but you've all kind of centered your life around the fact that this is an, a really important component to what you guys are and what you do. So, um, you know, kind of the push and pull that that, uh, exists in where you have to, you know, pay bills and all these other things, but then you also have to have a job that will be cool with you leaving for weeks at a time and stuff like that. Um, clearly you've made that decision, but, um, you know, how does that kind of like play around your head over time? You're just like, well, I'm as long as both worlds can exist, like I'm happy. Or if one is pulling more in the other direction, then I feel out of balance. And, you know, just that, that thought process. I feel like I'm a little bit of an anomaly compared to most people because for some reason I seem to be able to easily find jobs that don't care if I take off the tour. Um, you know, for years, you're just not not valuable. That's all. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I know. You know what? I'm really, really good at anything that involves getting paid at minimum wage. Like that's my, that's my (laughs) skill set is right there. Uh, no, but it's, it's such a strange thing. Like when I lived in Ottawa for years, I worked at this convenience store inside of, uh, you know, Adobe that makes Photoshop and whatever. They have an office in Ottawa and I worked at the convenience store inside there. And I was so lucky in the sense that I would work like four days a week from 12 to six. I'd never worked weekends. I could take off whenever I wanted. And the boss, uh, my boss there ended up being a pretty good friend of mine. And then same thing when we moved everything, because we're in Toronto now, when we moved everything down to Toronto, um, I worked at this place called David's tea, which I think you guys have in the States, but it's basically Starbucks for tea. Uh, same sort of thing, you know? Uh, and then I worked at a record label for a little while and obviously they were fine with me taking off cause that's their business. And now I work at a, at a Polish restaurant where it's the same sort of thing, but it's family owned. I like, I'm basically part of their family, which is great, but it's also like they knew what they were getting into when I was hired. I'm like, I'm going to leave for weeks on end. I'm going to do these things. But at the same time, like part of the deal is, is like, if I'm home and I'm there, I'm going to work hard. And I think that there's kind of a value in that ideal, but at the same time, I don't really see the point in living a life where I'm not able to indulge in the things that I care about. And I don't care about a whole lot, but I definitely care about music enough that it's worth it to me to, to forego a whole bunch of the other stuff that would probably make a life a little bit more comfortable or a little bit more, a little easier to do because at the end of the day, I get to do the thing that I've wanted to do since I was you know, 11 years old and do it in a way that is 
arguably self-serving you know we do the records we want we play the music we want we do the tours we want we do all of these things and in hopes that it catches on and we're able to continue to do it but i don't think our idea of success is being able to live off the band and be able to do all of these things it's more like be able to have a normal life with normal interests and yet still get to chase the passion that we care about in a way that makes it sustaining enough that it's not a drain on your soul um and I think we've been lucky enough to do that. It would be great to be able to do bigger tours and not have to worry about like, I hope this rest stop lets vehicles park overnight so we can get to sleep. But at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm living the thing that I wanted to do. So whatever else I have to do to make that work, it seems kind of worth it. Yeah, dude, dude. Wow. It's like you've done interviews before, man. <laughs> No, you're, this, you're very this is the first time. Like my mom calls me about once a week and I'm like, okay, let me practice these. Okay. I got to get ready for this. And Dude. she's like, shut up and go back to school. You idiot. You know, it's like a loving relationship, but, uh, yeah. no, it's, it's the end of the day. It's just like, this is a, what we all wanted to do. Right. And it's great when people get to do it and be super successful. And it's great that you get to do it for two years. Like at the end of the day, it's, it's what you want. So yeah, totally. Yeah. You'll, you'll figure it out no matter what. Well, Dan, thanks for letting me pick your brain. This was uh, super fun. And um, yeah, I'm excited about your record. Everybody should obviously listen to it. Uh, you know, you're, hopefully your charming ways persuade them to. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm trying, you know, it, it's all you can do. Uh, it's either that or, or do the opposite. And I'm definitely not Dave Grohl. So like, yeah, I gotta do what I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, dude. I appreciate this. This message is brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And it's near and dear to my heart because I do not drink. And everyone knows about the risks of drunk driving. You could get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed. But here are some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Drunk driving can also have a big impact on your wallet, too. You could get arrested and incur huge legal expenses. You could possibly even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking. Designate a sober driver or call a taxi. If someone you know has been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of drunk driving, but one thing's for sure. You're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over, please. I I will never ever forget the first show that we played together, Taken and Alexis on Fire, in uh, Lockport, New York City, or not? Well, yeah, New York, That's right? Not, not New York City, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, very far outside of New York City. Uh, yeah. And I, you know, as most bands do that play skate parks, you play in the middle of, of the ramp and you know, that's, that's what we did. But I just remember, you know, you guys specifically came down to play with us because you, you liked what we did musically. And then you, you, you were, every single one of you was like, you know, super kind and was like excited to play with us. And I was like, wow, this is really like, this is cool. And then once you guys started to play, I was like, Oh, like you're actually good. Like that, that usually doesn't, you know, like that usually doesn't happen. Like it's usually like, Hey, I, yeah. I really like you. And then, Oh, okay. Well I have to figure oh, out. Oh yeah. Okay. Well. Yeah. Tactfully say that. I, I know that. No, that's, that's, that's my big, my big takeaway from playing music is that, you know, not everybody who is a great person plays great music. 
and not everybody who is like a great uh, musician is a great person. So like you just kind of take people as you go. And it's always nice when those two things align. But uh, yeah, you're right. There are people I've met on the road where I've been like, oh, these guys are some of my favorite people of all time. And then, and then like, here I'm just like, but I can't, I'm going to step outside while they play. So right. <laughs> like, especially those early days, you know, like you, you make friends on the road and like, you know, you tour with a lot of like kind of pop punk bands or, you know, early 2000 emo bands and stuff like that. And you just kind of, you know, it doesn't really do it for you, but they might be lovely people and you might like, you know, yeah, you know, uh, you never know. Eye to eye on those things, right? Yeah. Well, and you. No, no. I remember. I remember that show, the Lockport in the skate park, right? Yeah. And like, and uh, I, I think like Taken was a Taken was a big deal in Southern Ontario, and like I'm mean, like, I'm not just I'm I'm this is very quickly turning into what a podcast is, which is two white men complimenting one another. Sure. But, uh, sure. that is, that's what's going to happen. We're going to get it out of the way. All right. Uh, taken in Southern Ontario, more specifically going further back, um, seeing taken play at the pine room at Oakville during like, uh, where Kordak would, would run a, you know, uh, uh, like it was like Oktoberfest or some sort of like, you know, uh, hard, hardcore festival sort of thing that would happen at the Pine Room in Oakville. And seeing Taken there was absolutely formative. And Southern Ontario has, like, a very kind of rich history of kind of melodic hardcore, right? Like, but, and I think a lot of people tend to say that, you know, grade would have been a big influence on Alexis. And I think more so then grade in Southern Ontario, um, I'd say taken was, was, uh, was a huge, uh, had a huge effect. And there are, there are a lot of the melodic hardcore bands from around here are like, or, you know, like melodic post hardcore sort of bands or screamo bands. A lot of them, the best ones saw taken play early on and yeah, had a big effect on uh, Southern Ontario. So I am, happy to be talking to you right yeah. i'm uh, happy to be happy that we got the tour and spent time together oh so, yes yeah. absolutely i mean all, all that was was you know i mean that's why we're still friends because you know we actually like each other as humans and we happen to like each other's bands as well it, it, it hit that trifecta or not that trifecta but the do, do it effect or whatever the bi, yeah the bifecta the bifecta thank you um but i i you know on that same tip like just the um that kinship that you feel like almost immediately in meeting people and just like hanging out for one evening is so, um, I don't know. It's just so rare and special, I think for the subculture that we exist in. And, um, I, I'm guessing that a lot of that feeling you also, uh, share of just like having those really intense relationships with people for, I mean, granted we spent more than just, you know, one night together, but like, just yeah, you know. Like, and I, I don't, I mean, I see it in other areas of like, you know, normal people's lives, but at the same time, I don't see it happen so quickly as like what, what it did in our, you know, scene. And I'm, I'm trying not to romanticize it, but it's just, it's so intense. No, I think that, the, um, we're all, we lived a very, very different lifestyle. If you lived in a touring band in some, some way or another, uh, it's a very different way of living. And, you have these kind of, uh, you know, short lived, but also very like, you know, you're, you spend everyday arms reach from someone, right? Like you're with that person all the time. And 
those friendships are, are good, but like, they're also the type of friendship where like you, you roll, you, you know, you do a tour with someone, you spend like two months with them or something. And then you go away and you don't see them for like a year. And then the next time you see them, you are like, it's like, Oh, I'm so excited to see you. Right. Like, so almost that absence makes the heart grow fonder sort of thing. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of how it's been for a lot of years. Like a lot of my best band friends are guys I won't see for a long period of time. And then, you know, you shoot the odd message here and there and you check and see how people are doing and like each other's pictures on whatever. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, and that's it. But I remember, I remember one time being on the road with, uh, the band anti-flag and I was talking about a friend I had back at home and I was like, Oh yeah, when I get home, I got to see my friend, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, uh, I remember Pat from anti-flag was like, your friend back home, your friend, I got news for you. All your friends are in this room right now. All right. <laughs> I was like, Whoa, Whoa, that's kind of harsh, Pat, but it's also kind of true. Right? Like if people at home are, are living a different sort of, uh, uh, friendships, I think than people on the road, they have, yeah. these, have these kind of, yeah, that's, I don't know. You know, that's true. I, 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 you think about it in terms of, uh, just length of time. And, I think there is that immediacy of the fact that you meet a person, uh, you know, while you're touring or whatever, and you have to squeeze a lot out in a very short period of time. Whereas like, you know, like, like you mentioned, you'll see these people once or twice a year. So like you fit a lot into a very short period of time. Whereas the people that you are surrounded by on a, you know, whether it's jobs or other normal life stuff, you see them clearly more often, sometimes more often than you probably want to just, <laughs> Based sure, on, yeah, I, I want to yeah. diversify it, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. The, the, the shortness of time definitely compounds that. Yeah. The, um, and so you, you, I know you were born, I'm going to, you know, fast forward through some of the, uh, biographical information. Cause I, well, first of all, I love the fact that, um, you know, friends of mine obviously have reached levels of success that when you Google a person's name and it says, you know, like, so George Pettit. And then, uh, one of the Google auto populated answers is like net worth, which I think is so funny. Cause like every, <laughs> like, and it, it could be for people of like varying levels of success, but it's just like, like re- people, people care how much, much money that George earns. Like <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah, but obviously oh, they're, they're interested. Yeah. I think, um, uh, those are mostly the guys that I work with, I think. <laughs> like in my other job sure. they're they're like is george like rich is this just some thing that he's doing on the side yeah no um uh i'll answer that for you right now because there are websites that uh, someone pointed me out to a website a while ago where it was like saying that i you know like george pettit's net worth is somewhere in the neighborhood of like you know like 22 million or something like that and i was just like i was like, like yeah that is that is not even not even remotely in the ballpark. I am still paying my mortgage. <laughs> like, you know, like it's, it's, uh, I will say this, George Pettit is comfortably middle class. All right. I'm yeah, comfortably like, middle class. Right, I'm not, right uh, yeah, I don't own, I don't own a, a, a sports cars, but, uh, I built a deck in my backyard. So there you go. There's, there's gives you, gives you an example of, of how I'm living. Yeah, no, no, that's, <laughs> um, <laughs> I just, yeah, I just think it's so, so entertaining that that stuff pops up. But anyway, the point I was, the, or I was trying to get to before I got derailed in my own head was the, uh, you know, clearly you were born in Southern Ontario and, you know, 
grew up in the area and, you know, had all of your sort of formative experiences. But I, I, I don't know, like, your family structure as far as, like, you know, who was in the house, like mom and dad, brothers and sisters. Like, what was that makeup like? Um, I'm an only child. Uh, my, my dad and my mom, they're still together and still living in the same house that I grew up in. Um, my dad was a mechanical engineer. Uh, and throughout my life, he worked for a company called Camco building, uh, refrigerator parts. But before that, he was like super like geeky thermodynamic sort of, uh, egghead, uh, making, you know, working on like, uh, nuclear power plants and he used to do punch card programming when computers were like the size of a room. And uh, he's just a really, a really interesting sort of cool guy. I don't know my dad, like uh, he's my dad, but he's definitely an academic. And my mom, uh, she worked um, as a, in human resources for the Canadian Center for Inland Waters. It was like a government job where the building that she worked in they they um, monitored all fresh water, I believe, in Canada. Like uh, there was a lot of like scientists and stuff like that, and they would they would you know. Uh, yeah, different, various projects, you know, like tracking, I think, like, uh, either, like, water levels or, um, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I can, I, can, I can feel a lot of guesses, but anything yeah. involving water in Canada, they okay. were dealing with that. Okay. So my mom was, like, you know, on the during the week, she was negotiating uh, contracts with unions and, like, and things like that, and then she'd come home and she'd be this bubbly, wonderful little mother that would be taking care of me. But they were both working, and they were both, uh, um, you know, that was it. So it was me and them, and just hanging out, hang, kind of my, hanging out, and hanging out. Family dynamic, right? Hanging out in Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and so, yeah, I, 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 you know, I bury the lead. I did know you were an only child, but um, just because us, <laughs> us, us only children def- tend to uh, gravitate towards one another. Um, the, I married one, yeah, and we had one. So <laughs> there's no way we have a cycle, yeah. <laughs> No, it's just, it's just it. Like, yeah, we have one child, two only children. It's, uh, yeah, pretty good. That is... And technically has a half-brother, though. So she's not... I mean, like, she didn't grow up with him, but right. she's doing some something there. That is a rare occurrence, though, to have that, that both people being only children and then only deciding to have one child. Like, that, I don't think that's very common. No, yeah, no. I don't, I don't, uh... I don't think that was necessarily like, it wasn't by design. Like it wasn't like we got together at the only child meetings and like decided we were going to continue the tradition of only childhood. We just kind of like, it's just kind of how it played out with us. But yeah, I don't know. I don't particularly adhere to any, I don't like, um, I find it very pejorative when people refer to me as an only child or like you're like when people use the term only child, like mm-hmm. they're always like, Oh yeah. Only child, you know, like, yeah, like shut in, not which is people, which I find, yeah, which I find kind of uh, a bit um, dismissive, especially considering I know some sibling people who have like like people with a lot of siblings who have some very like yeah are not very really interesting them. mental ticks yeah. because of that. You know, like just something. So one of my friends at work, I remember, like he has like brothers, right, and uh, he has this thing where like every time he gets chicken wings he orders suicide because it's the, it's the least likely wing to be uh, for someone to take from him. 
because he's so he's so protective of his food. Because growing up in a house with like two brothers, it was just like you know it was scrapping for food constantly. It was like this constant fight for survival, and that's something he brought into his like adult life, right? So I don't know. I don't yeah. think I have too many quirks from I don't know. Yeah, only child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, well, I mean, it's it's the same. I mean. Everybody, people can have different experiences and come out completely different in both arenas. I think it's like, yeah, but th- it's true. There is a labeling of only children that is mostly pejorative and like, oh, you're an only child. It's kind of like, yeah, that, oh, as opposed yeah. to like, oh, oh, yes. yeah. oh, I can see, I can see that. I can see that. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like, fuck, what? fuck you, Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Totally. Okay, sorry, armchair psychiatrist. Like, give me a break. Yeah. In a world where everyone is confined to their homes, society begins its largest bin watch to date. In the hallowed library of Hulu, or perhaps on a shelf of DVDs you haven't looked at in a decade, is a show that perfectly encapsulates life in the early aughts and launched a friendship that would inspire millions. Hi. I'm Zach Braff. And I'm Donald Faison. In 2001, we starred in Scrubs, a sitcom that revealed a glimpse of what it was like to survive a medical internship. As Turk and JD, we explored guy love. Nearly 20 years later, a lot has changed. We're not supermen, but we're still best friends. Eh. Given the mandatory lockdown, there's no better time to relive the series that brought us together in the first place. And we're doing it with a podcast. That's right, people. We're going to bring friends and crew members and fellow cast members and writers. And and guess what? We're going to even invite some of you to call into the podcast and ask all the questions you want of the entire Sacred Heart staff. Join us for Fake Doctors, Real Friends on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Let me talk to you about, frankly, one of my favorite sponsors of all time, Sonos. They meticulously design every speaker from the inside out. And let me tell you, getting started is the easiest thing ever. So just plug in your speaker, open up the app, and connect all of your favorite streaming services. You can start with one speaker and then connect more over Wi-Fi whenever you're ready. Every Sonos speaker and component work together seamlessly so you can customize whatever room you are putting them in. You can connect your TV or your turntable and listen to everything you love. I love Sonos so dang much. My son has one in his room. We have one in our living room. We have a beautiful sound bar for our TV. There are so many ways that you can integrate Sonos into your life and frankly, change the way that you listen to music. I have never listened to more music than when I listen to it through Sonos because it's just, that's the best way to do it. And they also have an amazing thing called True Play, which is basically you plug in your speaker, you get it all set up, and then you use your phone, microphone, to walk around the room and calibrate that speaker to the exact specifications of that room. It's unbelievable. So go to Sonos.com and learn more about all of their amazing speakers. I love them so much. And thank you, Sonos, for changing my music listening experience and my son's. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Sonos. So, uh, you know, be, having that experience and, you know, having to kind of lean on yourself as far as like figuring out, um, you know, like what you're into. And I mean, clearly your parents had, had involvement with that. But, you know, how did, uh, I guess, kind of like independent music, for lack of a better term, get sort of 
um, you know, thrust upon you and, you know, who were your, uh, kind of like <laughs> sage, like, uh, older, older people to be able to be like, Oh, George, actually check this record out. It's much better than this, you know, horrible pop punk record you're listening to when you're 12 or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, like I had, um, I guess like I've always been drawn to, um, I think like just like edgier, stuff in general like as a young child i was watching horror movies like very young i saw return i saw return of the living dead when i was like six and i did the math i was at like a, a babysitter's house and like the kids there put it on and we watched it and and um and i really i certainly i talked about this all i've talked about this before because i do feel like this was like a forward moment in my life seeing return of living dead at like a very tender age and seeing like the punks in it and just like the violence and the comedy of it and that i think that that really set the stage and then for the rest of my life i was seeking out the weird kind of outsider kind of avant-garde stuff and then late night television anytime i get to see a plate things that were on late night television always kind of pushed me in that direction. And then I, and then the music was just obvious. I mean, I grew up with, we had much music in Canada, which was like MTV, but it, it was like a lot more budget, very like earthy. Like there were a lot of personalities on it that all seemed, they were all very accessible and, um, and they would play music like late night on TV. They would play, you know, all sorts of stuff and you, you get, um, uh, you get exposed to a lot of different types of music back then and not so much now where there's less of that but I had a cousin so yeah you grow up and you, you learn about I like you know Skid Row and I like Black Sabbath and Nirvana and Pearl Jam and all that stuff and then one time um, I had a cousin that came over to my house and she was like wearing gigantic pants and had a uh, strung out t-shirt on and she gave me a mixtape and I put that mixtape on and it was just a bunch of punk music that like mostly like skate punk and, and whatever and like Operation Ivy and Rancid and whatever, right? No effects. And that was it. Like that was, from that moment on, I was a punk. I was like, you know, I, I, this is what I listen to now. I don't know how to get it. I don't know where to get it, <laughs> but like even the mixtape didn't have a track list on it. So I was listening to that and I knew a little bit, I knew a little bit about finding like fat records and I knew a little bit about that. And then it was just all exploring it myself. Uh, even if you like Green Day, eventually you go to a record store and they would have lookout record copies of Green Day albums. And then you'd be like, holy shit, Green Day, like had albums out before Dookie and then you're looking through it comes with like a little sleeve and there's all these different bands and some of them have like you know you learn about the Queers and Screeching Weasel and the Smugglers and all these other bands and then it just kind of leads you further and further down the track and then the more you listen to it the more you kind of realize it's like a lineage of influence like you're you're you like like a certain band you want to find out what they were listening to that made them make that music and that that sends you down a lot of different rabbit holes and you end up at, you know, eventually you end up at the Stooges and the MC5 and the Velvet Underground and all that stuff. And then you're at Question Mark and the Mysterians and you're going even further back and, and, uh, you know, yeah, no. so that's kind of, that's been my, 
the way I kind of navigated through music. And now it's just all everywhere, all the time, right? whatever. Yeah. Do you, um, and so, I mean, uh, you walking me through that lineage is definitely, um, you know, you were doing your own kind of, you know, research, like, you know, you were doing all the heavy lifting from that perspective, like, you know, because you were obsessed with it, you started to, you know, dig back, like you were saying, um, you know, and I definitely think, I mean, going back to the only child scenario, you know, I do think that there is a level of obsession that is kind of, I mean, it's definitely attached to our subculture because, you know, that's just how you get into weird stuff. Um, but I, I definitely think that there is a propensity when you are um, set to occupy yourself, gen- generically speaking, that you just kind of, you know, are more apt to be able to go down these rabbit holes in ways that, you know, you, you might, you might, you know, if you have siblings, but I think there, there is that little uh, itch that you're able to scratch when, you know, you don't have other people bugging you and <laughs> dividing your attention. Cause you have to like, Oh gosh, I got to take care of my little brother or sister or my older brother <laughs> picking me or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, definitely. You can definitely get a little bit more, you have a little bit more imagination and yeah, you, uh, I don't know, you know, I know plenty of people with, um, I know plenty of record collectors who have lots of siblings that are also record collectors. It helps having somebody like a family member that can kind of steer you in directions. I, had my cousin, but then, like, I feel like at some point I surpassed my cousin with knowledge of whatever, like, you know, independent music. And then I was kind of on my own figuring it out. And it led to a lot of really interesting, like, fashion choices. And, uh, you know, for a long time, you know, being the only punk in the village. Like, you know, I'm in Grimsby, Ontario, um, trying to, like, you know, figure out what punk was when you didn't have a lot of influencers in your life kind of thing. And like, so you kind of become the postcard punk, right? Like you're, you see images of it in books and things like that. And you kind of figure it out on your own. But yeah, no, there wasn't like, it wasn't like there was a group of, like there, were, there weren't a group of punks when I grew up in Grimsby. Like they, they kind of came, that kind of came about afterwards. Like, you know, or they were, they were long gone. Like that, that was, it wasn't like, there was a group of punks and skinheads that were hanging out in the, in the, in the, you know, cafeteria at school. And I tried to hang out with them. It was like, no, I was the kid with the, with the leather jacket cruising around in a small town and mostly hanging out with like art kids and, and, um, you know, general like kind of weirdos, people who like, you know, music or, or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. yeah. You, you're attract. Yeah. You, you start to find, you know, these, these pockets of people that, may not necessarily be exactly into the same stuff that you're into, but are able to, you know, you're able oh, yeah. to learn from the them kids, just as much like, as you know, any, yeah. anybody who, anybody who would draw the ire of the cool kid, you know, like I was, I was kind of more hanging around those, those sorts of people. And then that just led to going to, to, to shows, right? Like you, you get, you go into, um, you figure out where all the independent record stores are. You see, flyers for concerts that are happening locally and you go to those concerts and that leads you to meet other people. And you know, that's, that's not a fairly, that's a fairly common story. I would imagine for most people in independent music point or another, you, you go to the record store and you meet somebody that you eventually play in a band with. And so they're not clear. There were lots of places to play it too. Like we had lots of, within the second I had a car, I was driving, you know, 20 minutes in any direction, there'd be like a place to, there'd be like a, a city with venues 
say, a whole different group of kids there who were kind of perpetuating their own scene. And uh, that would be Hamilton or St. Catharines, even in Niagara Falls and Fort Erie, there was stuff going on. There was stuff going on in Oakville, Toronto, Burlington, uh, you know, uh, anywhere. Even in the Durham region, there were still there were, there were places to play and places to go. And, and you know, so uh, all within a relatively short distance, there was a lot to do. So, As a person, and even though I made fun of armchair psychologists before, I'm going to play one uh, right now on you, where you yeah. you strike me as a, as a person just knowing you um, for as long as I have, that you, like, as you started to go to, like, you know, junior high and high school and all that other stuff, where you were a person that could kind of um, fit into a lot of different groups and generally speaking, get along with people. Um, like, you know, you could hang out with your, I'm just, these are cheesy archetypes and stereotypes, but it's like, oh yeah, I could talk to, you know, the quarterback on the football team or whatever and all these, you know, high school narratives. Um, were you a person that kind of was able to like weave in and out of these groups or did you kind of just basically stick to the, the, the crew of misfits that you found at record stores and stuff like that? Uh, no, definitely, definitely, uh, there was a moment where, like, I'm not sure what you'd call the, the group of kids that I was hanging out with in, um, I think, grit, like, I'm trying to think how to break this down. Grinchy was pretty, like, there was, like, um, socio-economical divide, I found, between kids in school. Um, like, the rich kids were having their own party kind of thing. Kids that lived in like the big expensive houses were having their own sort of show and they hung out alone themselves. And then there was like, in the neighborhood that I lived in, we weren't like poor or anything, but we were like, it was like a, a smaller, like sort of kind of middle class like suburb, uh, like almost old, like cottagey community kind of thing, right? And the kids there, like, you know, yeah, they, they, they you know, maybe were coming from families with one you know, one income and like a couple different brothers and sisters and they were scrappier and, you know, a lot of fun. And those are the kind of the kids that I was hanging out with, right? Like at first. And then there was the big turn in, I remember in high school where, you know, I, 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 I just all of a sudden start listening to punk music and I bring that around. And when it was like fat record stuff, everybody was on board. But the second it was like, I'm at the party and I put on like a dead Kennedy's album. This is where the divide is starting to happen. Right. Like you can kind of like, and I start like, and I'm dressing out a little bit more. And those kids are, you know, who were mostly like, you know, a lot of them were like hockey kids and, or whatever, but they're kids I grew up with. And they could start, they started taking away a step away from what I was doing. And that's when I started kind of more gravitating towards the, um, to those, uh, to like the art kids. But yeah, you, I, I would say that you're right. I don't think I was a particularly cruel guy. And I, and I definitely, um, uh, got along with a lot of different types of people. And I think that's still probably true. Um, even in, I don't know, my, my current, like, you know, like in my current state, I think I can even put me into a, a social situation. I think I can pretty, pretty much find common ground with most people. So, yeah, I don't know. That's yeah. I think it's a fair armchair psychological profile of uh, <laughs> yours truly. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that that just yeah, you just struck me as that. 
Um, and I, I also, I also have to believe, um, cause this is something I just, you know, we didn't really have conversations about when we were spending a lot of time together. Um, there had to have been a band before Alexis on fire. Like you had to have played a terrible punk band or, or done something before that. Am I right or no? Several. Yeah, of course. That's what I thought. It was, uh, I played in like a basement punk band called like, um, never got out of the basement called Linus's blanket. And then they changed, I think they changed names. There was something else. I think we were like the Degrassi dropouts. But then there was another band called the Degrassi Dropouts. Degrassi, of course, was like this like teen melodrama, like Canadian oh, yes. uh, show. And yeah, it was, you know, eventually it would be remade and Drake would be on it. But the original version was that, yeah, I played in a punk band that, that was, yeah, never made it out of the basement. And then I um, played in a metal band called Condemning Salem. Which Ooh, is, that's good. Oh yeah, I know, right? I, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Taking taking a hard stance against Puritans, you know? Yep. That's what it was. Yep. We're just like we really condemned what went on in Salem, Massachusetts. I mean <laughs> I I that's a perfect teenage metal band sort of thing. Absolutely. And uh yeah, when that band actually played out, like we opened for um I think we opened for NRS one time in St. Catherine's and Okay. Um, yeah, you know, like just like things like that, we we would have. That's when we started booking our own shows and and uh, and kind of when I started networking uh, with other people. You know, you play at like Sonic Onion Basement, or you go to shows at Sonic Onion Basement, meet other people from other bands, and uh, yeah, Condemning Sin was the band that, that pretty much Alexis broke up. I would imagine, like you know, I started playing Alexis and I didn't have time to play in Condemning Sin anymore. Sure. But, sure. Yeah. That yeah. would have been. <laughs> hey, it's the real. <laughs> it's the real. It's the real Sophie's choice. You know, Alexis on fire. Oh yeah, and that makes Salem. <laughs> Could have gone in a lot of different directions, man. Gone. Yep, absolutely. Um, and the you know, the, I mean, clearly, like as you started to like you know play shows and play out, like you were talking about, where you started to you know get to know people and be more ingrained in kind of the the scene, as it were. Um, you know, as you approach the point of being able to be like, all right, I'm, I'm, you know, I got to graduate school and like, you know, quote unquote, take life seriously and stuff like that. Like what were you, I guess, on track to do or supposed to do? Like you were supposed to go to art school, I know, but then you, you know, you went on tour and stuff like that. Um, but that, that was kind of the, the road you were going to go down. Yeah. I mean, like that was my, that was my, like, I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do with the rest of my life. So I mean, art is pretty much, my only real option. And I did enjoy doing art and I loved film. I had a friend who was in a film program at Ontario College of Arts and Design and I was spending a lot of time in Toronto with him. He was like a year older than I was and, and he, uh, you know, helping him with his film projects and we were, you know, he was sharing a lot of like, uh, a lot of films, you know, like with me and like, you know, really influencing me in that regard and like, uh, seeing so many incredible movies. And then, uh, and I was fully ready to go and, and do that. And, uh, I put my, put together a portfolio. I managed to get like the English mark that I needed to be able to apply, which was a no small feat. Cause I was a terrible student. And, uh, yeah, I put together my portfolio and they accepted me and then I was all poised and ready to go. My friends, you know, like I had this apartment ready to go and then the band started doing stuff and it was like, all right, well, are you going to go to film school? 
or are you going to rock and roll? And I did that. Right. And, it, and I never looked, and I never really kind of looked back. As much as I do, like, still really enjoy film, it would have been interesting to pursue that as a career. You know, obviously Alexis was, um, you know, <laughs> it just had to happen, you know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, it, uh, was that a, uh, you know, difficult discussion like with your, I mean, cause clearly, you know, everybody has had that fork in the road moment of, you know, postponing their life to, you know, go on tour and like, there was no, you know, even though like tours were a thing and, you know, the momentum of a band is a thing, there's nothing that you could explain to parents that would ever be able to help them understand that this pursuit is not in, um, you know, the most unreasonable thing that they have heard of. Was it a difficult conversation for you guys to kind of work through on that? Or they were just like, Oh, I think at the time it was a completely unreasonable decision. Yeah. I mean, at the time and, and having two parents that were, you know, went to two fairly prestigious schools in Canada, like they were, yeah, they were uncomfortable with that idea, I think. But, uh, you know, Hey, it was, it was, you know, it was what was going to happen. Like, you know, and, uh, I had to I had to see it through, and at the time it helped a little bit because fairly early on we we managed to get a um, a publishing deal with EMI, and like really early on, and that allowed us to record. It gave us a bit of money uh, to get a van or to lease a van anyway, and uh, and I think that that gave them a little bit of an idea that maybe this, okay, like, you know, maybe he goes and he flops around on stage for a year. And that's the equivalent of, uh, you know, going to Europe for a summer. Right? And then he comes back and he goes to school. And I think that was kind of how I sold it to them as well. Like, you know, like my worst case scenario is that I'm a student in a couple of years, but, you know, I feel like I got to see this through. And they, yeah. they understood. And I think as uncomfortably as, as, as uncomfortable as it probably was for them, um, in a couple of years' time, when all of a sudden Alexis has music videos on TV, and and uh, you know they can hear, uh, they can see us, and you know they can see magazine clippings and stuff like that, they were a little more, you know, uh, receptive to the idea of it. Sure, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, once it becomes like you know more tangible for them, where it's like, yeah, <laughs> it could even be something as simple as like being featured in like the local newspaper and it's like oh yeah you're onto something there and it's just like that doesn't mean anything yeah just some, but, something yeah. i can show their friends so that like because there is that thing like you know oh what does your son do he's a musician oh <laughs> you know, <like>. totally <laughs> yeah sure and, is. Uh, and uh yeah yeah exactly even that, that, like even i get that right like like it's hard telling people like you know they're, they're like oh, what do you do for them? oh i'm a musician they're like oh yeah sure you are but you know like where are you playing at? You know, like, I don't know. So yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So no, now that they've got, now they can, now they're at a point where they can embarrassingly brag to their friends about, you know, about, you know, what their son's up to and stuff. So yeah, yeah. for sure. For sure. Um, from, uh, my perspective and, and knowing you guys, you know, as things started to, you know, rapidly ascend for you, um, you know, from, like you said, I mean, even like the publishing deal, I remember when you guys, uh, got that and like, you know, we clearly played shows shortly after that and uh, just all these things that started to happen for you guys, like 
it just like logically in my own head and still even reflecting on it, like none of it made any sense whatsoever. Not because like you guys were a bad band or anything like that, but it was just such a, an interesting thing because it just like that sort of stuff, like didn't necessarily happen in America, (laughs) like in general, like, you know, screaming music, like did not, uh, you know, percolate in the way that you guys, uh, did. And, um, you know, was it like, you know, this may be too, I guess, broad of a question for you to kind of really, you know, be able to pick apart. But as the stuff started to happen, like, you know, you get, you were probably just in like reaction mode and like, you know, saying yes to certain things and saying no to certain things. Um, like did it for, for you personally, not so much the band in general, but like, did it feel overwhelming for you? Did it feel, I know exciting of course, but, um, you know, was there any element of like, wow, I wish we could like, you know, slow down in some respect and like, you know, be able to like exist as a, a, I mean, even though I think you did have that when you would, you know, you'd play the States and you would play to you know, yeah. 150 people. So I guess maybe that could be the, the release valve for you, but was it overwhelming? That's kind of, that, that's pretty much it. Okay. That's, that's it. Like, cause we had, um, we had a, a, you know, a big degree of commercial success in Canada as big as you can get for a rock band in a lot of regards. And, and, uh, and so that was huge, but you can only really play Canada twice a year. Like there's no, like you can't just keep touring in Canada. There's only so many places to play. We don't have a lot of people. So in order for you to keep it going, you can't play here all the time. And where you have to go is slug it out in the States. And there are bands in the States that are touring there all the time. They can, by the time you do a full American tour, it's time to start the new tour cycle. You can just start over again and keep going. And we had our sites on, uh, on England and Australia and Canada and Europe and stuff like that. So like we didn't have the, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. America wasn't like, it was still a priority in that we were touring there a lot, but we just like, I don't think we could keep pace with some of the people, some of the people that I think what it takes to really try and infiltrate America. I don't, I just don't think that we were ever going to do that. I think we were a little too, some of the things that made us appealing in Canada, maybe, uh, you know, like, I don't know, the, for some reason in Canada, there was a window in the early 2000s where it seemed like we could stick our head into the room where pop music was happening. You know, like, like we could, we could all of a sudden we could play the much music video awards and, and, and receive an award and like people would take us seriously in the same way they take, you know, big commercial pop bands seriously, which is, you're right. And that's absolutely ludicrous considering that, you know, mostly what I did was have a bad haircut and, flop around on stage and scream at the top of my lungs like for some reason that just like that that, that like poked its, its way into the you know the, the zeitgeist whatever Canadian Canadian content was and we did that and you're right yeah it was I don't think it was necessarily overwhelming because uh, and this is something that I think you know I think Dallas has alluded to before an interview and for, but our first cross Canada tour was us and Bill Talent and Decimal Above. We finished the tour in Vancouver, playing 1,500 people at the Croatian Culture, Cultural Center there, which is it's one of the biggest shows we played at that time. And we were feeling like, um, like, oh my God, we're so huge. And then we crossed into, I remember somewhere in Washington, like Olympia or something like that. And we played a show in the States to the bar staff. Like there was nobody there. Like it was so. 
you have these moments, these great, huge, big moments of like, oh my God, I'm fucking Bruce Springsteen. And then you roll across the, you roll across the border and you're like, no, 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 you were lower than dog shit. Keep working, bud. You know, so it kept us, it kept us humble. That's for sure. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah. I, I guess I did. Yeah. It was funny. Like as I was asking it, I started to reflect on that and was like, oh yeah, like there, you know, for whatever, um, n- not like you guys as individuals started to buy into the ego that, you know, sometimes happens with bands that get thrust into these more, you know, mainstream environments or whatever. But like, even if you guys did do that, like you got it pretty quickly checked because like you said, you would be playing in front of, you know, 75 people in Rochester, New York. And you're like, yeah, yeah. If we, if we drive an hour away and that was, and that was still fun. Like it wasn't like below our station. Right. We just knew that's where we belong. Like we weren't far. That's where we grew up. We grew up in, in those sorts of shows. And about 50 like, 50 kids at like a hall show and that was the majority of our first like you know yeah of our first uh, experience in the united states we're playing these like kind of kid promoted shows and doing um touring in in those sorts of places and we still loved doing it i mean it was a fun uh well it, it's fun to play a gigantic show don't get me wrong and it's interesting but um, I think at the beginning, like, you know, it was just as fun for us to play a sweaty little room packed with kids that are jumping off the stage. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, it's I, to, I, I totally get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the, um, you know, you from uh, my perception in regards to the way that, you know, the once the business of the band started to become real, where it was like, oh, yeah, like, you know, they're whatever, buying a van and like, you know, getting paid for shows and all these other things started to, you know, really creep into the band's life. Um, they it seems like you always maintained a uh, a distance from that just because that was either something you weren't that interested in. You, you know, you were interested in to a certain extent, of course, because, you know. As, as it becomes your livelihood, you have to be interested in that. Yeah. But, you know, you always seemed sort of uh, like uh, it's a, a necessary thing I have to kind of care about, but I, I wish I didn't have to look at it that way. Um, is, is, that, is, that, is that accurate or uh, am, I, am I misreading <laughs> the, the situation? It might be, that might be more the only child syndrome is a little bit of that. Like, you know, I grew up in a house with two income, a double income and one kid and like, so, yeah, being concerned about money in general wasn't all that much of an issue for me. I, I just wanted to, I just wanted to play, you know, music, right? And so, yeah, that was, that always took the forefront. I think there was also, like, some, like, punk rock guilt in me that um, stems from being a child and listening to crafts and things like that and Fugazi. And so there, there's an element of, like, Anytime I get on the road and there was somebody who was a little too concerned about ticket sales or record sales or something like that, I uh, I, I found that to be uncouth, kind of like I almost didn't like I didn't I didn't like when people were like that. So I uh, yeah, so I gravitated. I, something about me wanted to just be a purist of as far as just playing music and enjoying playing music and and looking at that as a as a reward as much as any sort of financial thing. And, and don't get me wrong, like, it wasn't like we, we got big in Canada and then all of a sudden we were millionaires. It was like, oh my God, like, you know, like, we got a music video on and then all of a sudden I could pay for, I could pay rent in an apartment and I wouldn't have to worry about it. Like, I could leave for three months and, you know, my rent would be paid and, and uh, you know, I could buy myself a used Mazda Party 
Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I, I definitely think that because I mean, no matter what, like there has to be, you know, one or two people in the band that are like, you're not only interested in it, but show some sort of strength on it. <laughs> Being able to like, Oh yeah. yeah, put together a budget or a spreadsheet or whatever. Um, but you know, because you know, clearly if there's like, every single band member has uh, an interest and then has a strength in that, like that, then you get the, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen sort of scenario. But um, yeah, it, it, it makes sense what you're talking about though. Oh, for sure. Like, I don't know. I mean, we put a lot of trust in our management to our management, you know, uh, and, 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 and don't get me wrong. I think that, you know, uh, at times has gotten us into trouble where we trusted people more than we should have or didn't really care enough to like, yeah, none of us were accountants or anything. And, you know, we didn't understand really, you know, understanding the difference between net and gross is like a big deal. And like all this sort of stuff like that. Yeah. So like we didn't always make the most sound financial decisions or, and we have been taken advantage of in the past, but um, in the end, you know, like it all kind of worked out, which is, which is uh, which is good, but yeah, no, I've, I've definitely um, never been much one for uh, understanding the business side of the music industry. And now we have now we have these like meetings with our record label, and they go through they're going through all this stuff, and I'm just like, you know, like the music industry is just a bunch of accountants, isn't? And they're like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially now with like streaming and everybody trying to figure that out, whatever. Like it's just it's crunching numbers. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny. It, the the business side of things, you definitely are just like, oh, it's like the same thing. Like you know, the, a suit is a suit is a suit, and I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's just a, like, oh yeah, yeah, these are people who you know, as opposed to taking, you know, banking seriously, they're just like, Oh, I, I want to work in the music industry, but like, you know, I'm not going to be in a band, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, Oh, yeah. okay. All right. That, that makes sense. No, I'm just going to like, I'm going to file like accounting and figure out like, Oh God. Yeah, no, it's, it's way above my head. And it's kind of the reason why when the band was done, I went in a completely different direction because I recognize that like, you know, being in the music industry and playing in a touring band, like are two, they can be two very different things, like very, very different things. Very so totally. If you don't, if you don't, and especially if you don't pay attention, which I, you know, like I didn't learn how to. I didn't. I didn't like you know learn how to record very well. Like you know, I don't still don't understand. I relied on studio engineers and and producers and things like that. And uh, you know, and, and tour managing is a whole other sort of thing. Managing bands. Uh, starting record labels like you, you would you'd be better off to have like a degree in business or whatever event planning things like that like I that's above my that's out of my league right so I was like so I can learn that or I can learn something completely different from something else right so, yeah absolutely yeah um and kind of, I'll, I'll get to the, you know, what you were just uh, talking about from, you know, yeah, we don't once, need to, you know, once you, once you made a shift yeah. into that, but the, um, 
you you kind of always i mean the the way that you are as uh you know a front man and a you know a, a stage person and like all of those labels that you can put on people um it, it seems like you were always you enjoyed the experience and you enjoyed playing live and you enjoy kind of you know like yucking it up and like you know hamming it up and doing all that sort of stuff um but you could kind of at least from my perspective, you could care less about like the, um, I guess the adulation that comes from it and the sort of like, you know, hero worship where, you know, that, that happens, especially by, from singers of bands, like people just always gravitate towards that. Um, and so like, you know, had that, is that always something that, um, you were kind of like, well, I'm like a, and I don't want to use the term like reluctant front man. Cause that just kind of sounds like, like a, well, it sounds like another band, but no, <laughs> But, but you know, there is, there's a disconnect. No, what? there is. The reluctant frontman is would be a great name for this pod, for a podcast, I think. <laughs> or you know, like totally. yeah, that would be. That's like a, maybe that's more like a tombstone. You know, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You put right. that on my yeah, eulogizing reluctant frontman. No, uh, no, no, no. I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, I, I do separate the two, and it's hard to to do that in some regards. I think. Um, because performance is still something I very much feel. And, uh, you know, getting out on stage is, is a very a very visceral thing. There's no missing words when I get out there. I know what I'm doing and I know how to, uh, and, you know, it takes a degree of bravado and confidence to do it, uh, regardless of, you know, what you're doing, if you're playing the cello or if you're, you know, standing up there ripping your shirt off. But as far as... I don't think I've ever been comfortable with any sort of fame, really. Not that I've had like a ton of it, but in Canada specifically, and specific, when people come up to you and and they don't really know you, but they know you from your music, and they're and they're excited to meet you. I mean, like I'm always very really gracious and happy that they're there. But yeah, no, I, I think I buck against fame, and because because at the end of the day, you know, I live with me, and I know that. It, you know, uh, there are some aspects of me that are very, you know, they're not extraordinary. Like, I think that, I think that if you find that about most people, I think most musicians or, or, uh, artists, actors, whatever, like anybody who has a certain degree of fame, I think if you had to spend like, you know, any amount of time with those people, you'd realize very quickly that they're just, they're just people like anybody else, you know? And, Really, it's only, you know, uh, they're only as good as their last joke or how much you enjoy, you know, being around them. Sure. And, you know, I don't know. Yeah, so fame is just like one of those things, like a byproduct of what you do. Um, and the idea of hero worship and stuff like that, I just, I don't know, man. Like, I just, I've never felt necessarily like that, even though when I go up on stage, I think I do go to a certain place that you need to, the, the place that you need to go to in order to, perform or to try and captivate people, you do need to go to some place where you think fairly highly of yourself. But yeah, no, in my waking life, I, I, yeah, I've never, never really been um, interested in that sort of thing. I'd rather, I'd rather go into, um, you know, a room full of people who don't necessarily know me personally or, or, or care about, or, you know, care about my back catalog. I, I more interested in that sort of thing. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question. No, absolutely. Totally did. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the last two things I want to hit on was, um, you know, like you mentioned at the top where, you know, clearly you have a son. How, uh, how old is he now? He's like nine. Okay. Yeah. I I thought he was around the same age as my son too. Um, you know, and like every, like, especially, you know, like once you, uh, you know, formed dead tired and like, you know, basically every piece of press since you've had a child and every interview, everyone's always like, like, Oh dude, you're a dad. Like that's crazy. Right. And it's like, Oh God, like it's such a tired trope or whatever. But the, uh, the thing that interests me about, uh, your experience with it is the, um, you know, I, I am sure you have reflected on being a parent through, uh, the lens of, being raised in this subculture and being you know, profoundly influenced by, you know, all of these, these DIY ethics and all that stuff that comes with, uh, what we've got into. Um, so how, how does that, and this again, maybe too big of a question, but like, you know, how have you kind of reflected on your experience being a dad and that sort of, you know, anti authoritarian in nature that comes up in what we do. Uh, and then, and then you obviously have to be the authoritarian <laughs> with your son because they, they need, they need some, uh, you know, boundaries and stuff like that. So how does oh, that come, yeah. How does that ping pong around your head? Huge, huge failure. Unbelievable. Do what I say, don't do what I do. It's weird. Like, yeah, you know, uh, there's, I don't know. Yeah, no, I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm pretty good at navigating the line between the two. I think we're still very good. Um, I don't know. Me and, me and the little guy are, are, are best friends. But at the same time, you know, he knows, uh, he doesn't want to let me down. And he wants to, um, when it comes time to do work, you want to make sure that he's kind of better than, like, I want to make sure that he's better than me at the end of the day, you know, because I, and, and, the hardest times for me as a father, when I see, um, when I see things in him that I do that I don't want, like you know, like laziness or lethargy or whatever, I see him doing that sort of thing or, or giving up on something when it gets hard, you know. So you gotta, it's it's, it's weird being a dad, you know. Like you gotta, um, yeah, I don't know. And all the uh, authoritarian stuff, it gives me a lot more respect for my dad. And, you know, you understand, you know, times when he may have been uh, frustrated or tired or, or um, you know, maybe he was short with me or whatever. You completely understand why now. <laughs> like, or if I was acting out, like, oh, God, yeah, like I was a, I was a, um, you know, I was probably wasn't the most the easiest child to raise, and, and I probably took a little bit of, uh, um, you know, got into, I definitely got into trouble and did things, came home from the, you know, with the cops a few times, or, you know, and, and and so I hope that he's not gonna. That's obviously not gonna happen with him, but you know, uh, I also feel like I. I've forgotten what it's like to be a kid in some ways, and maybe it's because I played in a band for 12 years, and uh, and I got to extend my adolescence for a very long time. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like I, it, in some ways it's given me. I can kind of almost relate to things that he's going through, and I can kind of see. But I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, it, 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 you know, those two things kind of are mutually exclusive. I don't think that because I like, you know, crass back in the day, I can't be a authoritarian father now. Sure. You know, like those people had, you know, Penny Rimbaud had a father at some point. You know, like totally, and they had probably got told not to do something at some point. And, 
parents you know quite well in, in, in regards to certain things, depending on the parent, obviously. But, yeah, I don't know. I just try and be a, a good dad. And then there's certain things I let them get away with that I think other parents, like my parents wouldn't let me get away with. Like, right. we have a, a generally, a, like, I don't adhere to any sort of, you know, uh, archaic notions of growing profanity or anything like that. You know, like, if someone who's not saying hateful things, he can get away with swearing a little bit here and there. I let him know not to do that at school. There's obviously things not to do with But I've, I've even used it in the past as, like, a, as like a, a parenting tactic. <laughs> like, like, where... When he was young, he used to be scared to go into bathrooms. Like, he used to be scared. I think it was because of, like, those Dyson hand dryers. They were, like, a jet engine. He would be terrified of those things. So, but it was an issue. He'd always be going out, and I'd take him to the market, and we'd go and buy some stuff, and then he'd be like, Daddy, I gotta go home. And I'm like, buddy, we're not going home. Like, you know, you gotta use a bathroom here. When you're not driving all the way home so we can use the bathroom. And he's like, no, I gotta go home, Daddy. I was like, I'll tell you what. If you go into the bathroom here, and you use the bathroom, when we get home, I'm going to let you say three swear words in the living room. And he was like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that. Yep. So he goes in, he uses the bathroom, and he comes, he comes out, and he's like, <laughs> he's, he's so proud of himself. I'm proud of him. I'm pumping him up. And I'm like, you say those, you're going to get to say them in the living room when we get home. And I, there's no repercussions whatsoever. Yep. So he gets in the living room, and I'm like, all right, kid. How about it? Let's see what you got. Yeah. He looks at me and he just looks right in my eyes and he goes, fucking ass. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's two? That's two swear words, bud. Right. And he's like, okay, let's hear the last one. He's like, stupid. And I was like, there you go. <laughs> now he's, now he's, now. and that was how I got him over <laughs> to go to the public bathroom. That's Small little stuff like that. I don't know. Maybe that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's a that, that's a, like that didn't, that's Doug, unconventional. Doug didn't do that to me. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> totally. <laughs> no, I like that example. It's beautiful. Um, Good. And then the uh, you know, l- like we were talking about earlier, where it's like you know, y- you made a huge shift, obviously, after the the tour life started to die down, and you know, bands started to not be the focus. Um, this is kind of a, a two part question. So one of them being like, was it a real struggle for you? Um, as the identity, um, not, not saying that you had bought into like, Oh, I am, you know, George of Alexis on fire, but like, there's clearly a moment, a line in the sand of just like, Oh crap, I got to figure out like what is next. Um, and I mean, clear, and then, you know, it's well-documented. You, you went into a career being a firefighter. Um, so yeah. it's the first part of the question is, was it, you know, extremely scary for you to be like, all right, I got I guess I got a blank canvas now. Um, and uh, the second part, I'll hit you at some point strategically in this conversation. So answer that first okay. part. <laughs> sure. The, uh, yeah, no, the um, uh, band's done. Terror sets in of what's next. Like, that's a, uh, there's, there's no, yeah, no mention words about that. It was, it was fear. Like, you're like, holy shit, I got to do something. And I've got to. Got to bring a new baby at home. And I got to figure out what to do. You know, I got to provide for the family. We got a home that we, a mortgage and things like that. Very, uh, yeah, it was scary times in that we need to figure something out. And then luckily enough, we were, as much as we didn't 
really care about money that much. We were fairly smart with how we doled it out. And um, I probably had about two or three years of Alexis on fire severance that was still sitting in our, in our uh, business account. And we could just, I could just pay myself out a salary from that. That would allow me, you know, to go back to school. And it bought me time uh, to go through the recruit process to become a firefighter. And that was it. Like, I, I mean, like, I think it, I just hit the ground. Like, I think it was probably fear that propelled me. I was like, all right, I hit the ground running. I talked to a few friends that I knew that were, um, uh, you know, that were in the emergency services. They did put me in, in touch with people they knew. They gave me checklists. Here's what you need to apply. Here's what you should do. Um, and then I just started doing those things. And, you know, um, it takes probably about, it took me probably about a year and a little bit to get to a point where I could effectively apply to cities, uh, gathering certificates. And, and uh, I'd done a lot of volunteer work with St. John Ambulance, Victorian Order of Nurses, and other stuff like that. And, um, and you know, I'm taking weekend courses in technical rescue. And I was, uh, oh, man, like... I, I took a job in non-emergent patient transfer, so I was driving an ambulance for a lot of years, for about a year and a half, and that was um, a job that I got paid, like, you know, $11 an hour at, and it it cost me more to work there than it did. Right. It really did to, to, to make any sort of money, so it was like one of these resume jobs I'm doing to try and get experience so that I can... You can look good on your resume so they can apply for jobs and stuff. So, sure. yeah, man. And when I was working there, that was like, those were dark times just because there was, you know, now you're spinning your wheels. And one thing that you kind of know getting into it is that it's going to be hard to get a job in fire. Like, it's not about the 70s where you walk into a fire hall and they say, hey, I'd like to be a firefighter. And they're like, here's your helmet. Here you go. We'll spray the hose. Like, it's a, like a five tier process of like a human resource gauntlet where they've got like seven jobs and there's a thousand people going out for it. And it, it, yeah, it took me about third part of three, three and a half years to kind of get there. Sure. And that was, and then I got hired and then, and it was just gravy. And then Alexis, reforms shortly thereafter <laughs> and, uh, and that all boomerangs back um the, the the second part of that question i was going to ask where you know because clearly there is uh i mean there's identity in in everything or people can obtain identity through anything that they do whether it's like their you know they their job or you know their their church or whatever um you know but clearly you replaced one identity of being like you know like yes i'm george this frontman of this band and then um you know placing yourself into a a very tried and true identity of like a firefighter you know like that is a real that is a real thing that has history and so much that's like you know kind of laced into that and it's completely um i wouldn't say the opposite of uh, you know being a frontman of a band there are some similarities but like you know did you notice the kind of shift between those two things uh, especially because obviously they don't correlate to one another like it's not like anybody that no. is fighting fires with you is like oh thank god we've got george here because you know he can, yeah, he can yell at the fire. right <laughs> he's gonna really help us yeah but <laughs> no that, i was i just find conscious of that the whole way through was um i recognized that my background was going to be 
it's actually really different from most of the guys. Most of the guys that are and women that are getting hired are coming from contract workers. You know, like they're uh, general contractors, or they're you know they're coming from an emergency world. They're coming from the military. They're coming from uh, you know sports teams, a lot of hockey players, uh, a lot of football players. Guys who get those are those are the majority of the people that get hired. And I come from a very different background. And while I think there's a certain novelty to interviewing the guy who's a, who's a uh, um, you know played in a band, and uh, you know there's a certain novelty to that. I think that novelty falls away pretty quick if I can't do the job, right? <laughs> like like sure. like that. That'll get me. That might get my foot in the door, but if I don't know how to start a generator or, you know, change the blade on a chainsaw or something like that, or, you know, don't understand what it takes to do the job, well, then, you know, I'm not going to moonwalk into the position, right? And I've been conscious of that since the start. Like, since when I went to school, when I went away to go get my certification, there was, uh, yeah, I, I probably had something to prove. Like, I, I felt like I had to push a little harder and be a little more gung-ho because of that because I was I, I, I did like I imagined you know people looking at me and thinking like oh god this guy's a musician like you know like does he have work ethic am I hiring an alcoholic right now am I hiring a, you know like, I'd have a lot of questions if I was in their position so that was it I just pushed extra hard and, and that was uh, I had certain advantages in that, you know, I did. I had this income from Alexis, so I didn't, you know, like it's a full-time job trying to apply. But I just had to do, if there was if there was one thing that I I didn't have, I, I just went out and tried to get that in any way that I could with regards to like building my resume. And it paid off in the end. Like it ended up working out. Sure, yeah. Well, yeah, through, through, yeah. Your hard, through your hard work and dedication, I think that, you know, I mean, you're, you're not going to give yourself credit for that, but, you know, I can give that to you. Because that's, that's, I mean, that's, not, that's not something that, um, you know, most people when they have to make the, uh, the shift in not knowing what to do, um, you know, yes, of course you had the, like you mentioned, you had the luxury of the fact that like, yes, I have time, you know, like the, the finances buy me time, but not everybody is going to be able to like, roll up their sleeves and like do something that is so, um, you know, drastically different than what they used to do. And obviously like physically demanding and so many other ways. And so, yeah, it's just, it, it's cool. And I think that's why, um, you know, people are attracted to talking to you about that because it is, yeah, it doesn't matter. This is the first I've really, this is the first I've really, like I've talked a bit about it with on Damien's podcast or whatever, but this is like pretty much talked a bit about with George. This is the first time in the last year, like I've been a firefighter for four years, and yeah. first time I've really talked about it with people outside of it, and like, and and, and that's the I've been trepidatious with that too, just because, and I should say this because yeah, if there's a firefighter, firefighters are listening to this, I might, I might have judged somebody for going on and and doing an interview about them being a firefighter because there is this there is something that's kind of like. I don't know. You don't want to be boastful about it because it comes with a certain degree of, like it's one of the most respected careers, you know, going pretty much, you know, kids wave at us when we drive the truck around and stuff. Right. And there are certain guys that I think really revel in that. And they like, you know, they're wearing their station wear around and they're going and really broadcasting that they're a firefighter. Right. And so for a long time there, I, 
I played it pretty close to the chest. I didn't, I didn't really talk to anybody about it at all. And at some point, but then, you know, Alexis came back and I mean, it's part of the story. It's part of the story of, of my life, right? Like, I, I can't, I don't really. Yeah. Don't shy away from that. I don't yeah. know why I would. Yeah. It's okay to, it's okay to talk about it in certain regards. As long as I'm being respectful to it. Exactly. And I think another thing too is like, I mean, the first time I was in the recruit process, I tried not to broadcast anything about it because you would, you get people who were, they weren't firefighters yet, but they wear their like, their school shirts around and they really liked people thinking that they were firefighters and I did not want to, I didn't want to be a poser, you know? I didn't want to be a fucking poser. Yeah. And, uh, and that was it. So, well, dude, well, yeah. dude you, you saying that, it just, it triggers a, an idea of the fact that, uh, you know, you, I mean, not only you respected the profession and respected the hard work that like goes into it, but in the same way that it's like, you know, that, like that, that poser culture, like that really, I mean, yes, of course it, it exists in, you know, mainstream thought or whatever, but like that is acutely, we are acutely aware of that in subcultures where it's just like, what do you mean you're wearing a crasher? You've never even listened to them. You're 15 years old or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like that is like on yeah. our radar David all Beckham the time. gets off his helicopter wearing a fucking crasher. You gotta be kidding me. That's <laughs> bullshit. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah. I've got the fucking Keating of 5,000 original copy. Oh my God. Yeah, no, I, I, I know exactly what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. They don't broadcast that shit, you know, like they don't, they don't have people that, you know, tell them they're this hero all the time. They're just, they just show up to work and they do their job. And that, and there's, there's a grace in that, that I, I really appreciate. And so, yeah, talking about it, I fear that I'll undo that, that sort of, because that's really what I want to, you know, that's the type of person I want to be on the job. Sure. Absolutely. Who cares about it? You know, early on, I went to an information session in Hamilton and the chief there was just like, look, there are people who want to be firefighters and there's people who want to appear to be firefighters. And I didn't want to be, yeah, I didn't want to be a poser, you know? And I didn't from same sort of shit from punk. Yep. You know, uh, no, absolutely, dude. You, 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 not only do you respect punk culture, but you respect firefighter culture and that those are, those are, those are great things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Well, George, thank you so much for hanging out. Obviously we could, I could punish you for another like, you know, two hours, but clearly that's uh, what, that's what Damien does. So I don't need to do that. Oh, I'm just kidding. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's hey. probably for the best. The last, like the last, like, you know, 20 minutes of my interview with Damien, I'm sure is just like, I'm just talking total bullshit. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's good to cut it off while we're still coherent. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, I but, think so. And but yeah. uh, Ray, it's, Ray, it was a pleasure talking to you again. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Thank man. you, man. It was fun. It was fun. Thank you very much, George, for hanging out with me one afternoon. It was it was great. But I really appreciate when people spend the time with me because, you know, they don't need to. They can be hanging out with their family. They can be hanging with their friends, doing whatever. But, uh, yeah, they decide to hang out in this very podcast. So thank you, George. And thank you to Dan from Sparrows. You need to check out their new record that just came out. Find it on Bandcamp. Google that up and listen to it. Next week, I have a very special episode because, frankly, it's one of my favorite bands of all time and one of my favorite human beings. Scott Krause from the band Earth Crisis. We decided to do something very unique where 
I took him through every single record full length that he has released. So every single Earth Crisis record. And we did a little uh, self-audit, self-reflection, where we kind of talked about the time and the place the band was in. Scott shared some incredible stories about Earth Crisis and, um, you know, some of their records and just so many anecdotes that honestly, I was like halfway through in recording this episode and my mind was blown like five or six times. And I thought I knew a lot about Earth Crisis. So yeah, oh, I can't wait to share that this week or next week. Yeah, that's what you got next week. All right. And until then, please be safe, everybody. Big shout out to our homies at Sonos because they make the best speakers possible. I don't know why my son is clapping in the background, but he loves his Sonos speaker. Yeah. But they are frankly the best speakers in the game. I have multiple set up around my house and it has changed the way that I listen to music. So please go to Sonos.com, show them the love and support and let them change your life when you're listening to music. Okay. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, JabberjawMedia.com. Hi, I'm Esther Dean. I've made my life by writing songs like Fireworks by Katy Perry, Super Bass by Nicki Minaj, What's My Name by Rihanna, just to name a few. And now I'm having an absolute blast sharing some of the knowledge that I've learned with upcoming songwriters on Songland on NBC. I'm excited to welcome you to a brand new season of Songland and Songland's podcast, giving you new insight into the magical art of songwriting as told by some of the best in the business and also the pioneers and the up-and-comers who will be shaping the hits you'll be listening to for years. We have an amazing roster of talent this season. I promise you, you don't want to miss one single episode. Don't miss Songland, Monday nights at 10, 9 central, and join us here on Songland's podcast, available every week after the show on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts. 